It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. Hello, listening people. Hello. Hello, Bartek. How are you doing? Mr. Good, Bartek. Ryan. How are you? Oh, big moment of silence from Bartek. I know. There. I wanted to throw you off, but I was like, oh, are you going to say anything? Then I interrupt you. I was going to say, I heard you were dead, Bartek, which now means <laughs> I have a fate in store for me. Nope. Here I am. I'm still alive. You're still alive with an eye patch. Just slithering along like a snake. Like a big fat snake. That was his catchphrase, right? Just slithering along. <laughs> <laughs> say it like how he would, though. Just slithering along. Just slithering along. Metal Gear. So we are... Do you feel lucky, punk? Well, do you? We are Spit and Polish, and we are presenting to you our show, Pictures Pow Wow, where we talk about a movie that has come recommended. There's a cycle of recommendation that goes through us, your hosts, and even to you, the listening people. That's right. You can recommend us movies, and we are actually in need of some recommendations. The list is getting a pretty, pretty light right now. Uh, but... Today is a day where we talk about a movie that I recommended for the podcast. That is correct. Me, Ryan, I recommended but I, this. I thought it was the hosts and then the listening yeah, people. Yeah, well, today, so. is, today is the one where, where, where I, we're doing oh. a movie that I have recommended. Oh. At the end of this, the listening people's recommendation will be revealed. Right, Ooh, right. Spooky, scary. Yeah, okay. I, I actually know, but I'm just playing. You're a, playing I'm the audience, audience surrogate. You're the audience <laughs> I'm the surrogate. Audience and surrogate. Wow, get out of here. But we are talking about Escape from New York. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Well, it's actually Snake Plissken's Escape from New York, <laughs> but I know what you mean. No, it says at the beginning, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. So the the apostrophe is like John Carpenter is Escape from New York? No, this is his Escape from New York. But he's not in the movie. Well, you don't know that. Maybe he is, and you just didn't notice no, it. I read, There's a lot of... No, I read the trivia. The main character is this Kurt Russell guy. <laughs> John Carpenter doesn't have to be the main character to escape from New York. Oh, was he off screen the whole time following Snake as yeah. he slithered along? Yeah, so if the listening people, if you have not seen Escape from New York before, it is out there, available to watch. We will be going through it in detail, so if you're worried about spoilers, you should be, because we're going to discuss it, but this is a movie with a very straightforward plot. An interesting conceit, a very novel conceit, one that is where you tell it to somebody and you look at them and go, well, that's implausible, but that's a great movie pitch. But the story itself is very, very well-trodden ground, but it's that John Carpenter way of delivering it. Moody atmosphere, aesthetics, the music, the casual nature behind it all. And so we are going to get into it. Now, my history with Escape from New York is I've grown up with this movie. My uh, mother is a big Kurt Russell fan, and Snake is obviously uh, one that we have to love in our household. I actually talked to her the other week, and she likes Snake, but she prefers the other John Carpenter, Kurt Russell stuff, because he speaks more in those, <laughs> and she loves hearing him talk. He has a very 
fun cadence as an actor. Even in this, with the little he does say, the way he says those lines, just they're memorable line deliveries. So in other words, she likes him a little bit more than she liked him in Cash, Tango and Cash. Oh, way more. (laughs) And yet, in her defense, she also said, but I like Soldier and he barely speaks in that. And so... We grew up and I grew up in a household that was big into Kurt Russell. The Thing, which is also a John Carpenter movie, was always on, was always a watch in our household. And it is one of the great films of all time. And I would argue, uh, not much of an argument, but it's probably John Carpenter's best movie, uh, The Thing. But Escape from New York grew up with it, have always loved it, and I also grew up with the Metal Gear Solid games as well, and it was just fun to kind of have them be a a companion to this movie, as well as there's Escape from LA, which I've watched as well. I don't like Escape from LA. There are some elements that are brilliant, but most of it is terrible. The ending to Escape from LA is fantastic, but the rest of it is pretty bad. But having the Metal Gear Solid games, Kurt Russell's filmography, and this, Escape from New York has this very large looming presence. Yeah, literally and stylistically, yeah. Yeah. So, and oh yeah, and so many movies, so many things have just taken from this. Uh, DC, a while back, had uh, Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad had the, we inject the things in your neck, and if you don't do it in time, your head blows up. They, 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 here it is in Escape from New York. Yeah, that's that's a, it's a common plot point in a lot of things. Like, oh, you better do this thing or else you'll die. And so that is my relationship with it. Now, tell us a bit about your history, relationship, and dynamic with Escape from New York. Uh, so I hadn't seen it before, but like I've told you a few times, it is one that I've always been meaning to get around to. Um, I am a fan of Metal Gear games as well. I started much later. I think first time I played one of them was in 2009, but I was aware of them up to that point, uh, 2008. Um, and obviously, when reading about like the influences certain things had on auteur directors' works, um, you do get a sense of like, oh, okay, this was a major one. And for Metal Gear, Escape from New York was a very major one. Uh, did you know that the main character's name is Snake Plissken? <laughs> and he has an eye patch. <laughs> he has an eye patch. I mean, Solid Snake doesn't get one until the fourth one, and even then it's a bit of a fake one. But <laughs> you do get eye patch characters throughout the games. The one in Metal Gear Solid 3 gets an eye patch for real. Mm-hmm. Um, Metal Gear Solid 2, he uses Plissken as a code name to cleverly hide his identity. He grows his hair out as well to match Kurt Russell. He grows his hair out. <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and definitely throughout the year, is you have made the point of like, oh, Solid Snake is Snake Plissken. Yeah, yeah, just Snake in general. Snake in general. I, I, I merge all of the... Yeah. And going into the movie with that notion, there were some elements here and there. I kept hearing Dirty Harry, so when I read the trivia, I was like, he based it on Clint Eastwood. I'm like, oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, what you were saying, plot-wise and all these other elements are very much more comparable with the Metal Gear series. There's just so many little things down from, like, he has to go in unequipped, which Mm -hmm. is, like, they call that OSP, or on-site procurement in Metal Gear Solid. You even have the sequence where they've captured him and taken away all of his things, and he's just, in this case, just in his pants. Yeah, yeah, the Mm -hmm. the torture sequence prequel. Uh, Like, in Metal Gear Solid 2, there's a part where, like, a politician has, like, the 
They call it the football. It was like the briefcase mm. handcuffed to him. It's like, oh, wow, I know that from Metal Gear Solid 2. Hideo Kojima must love this movie a lot. Yes, they got the president. <laughs> <laughs> Everything like that. All of the espionage. and The even- fact that it all takes place in one night as well. That's very Metal Gear 1, 2, 3. A lot of the crawling around and trying to dodge and stealthy type things because Snake Plissken in this film... Yes, there are action moments, but it's only when it's needed and called for. A lot of his moments are just slinking around alleyways and hiding behind things. Yeah, like the first third of the film, really, is kind of like that. But uh, how did you feel about uh, the movie overall as a whole? Uh, I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot. It very much... (laughs) A lot of similar things to The Warriors, actually, Um, you know... New York City with a lot of emphasis on the crime in the 70s. Um, yeah, you. It, it brings up that premise of this is now a you know prison island. Manhattan is a prison island, which is similar to Arkham City. So I was, mm. had some expectations based on that. And based on those expectations, I was thinking like, oh, crime everywhere. And you get that a little bit with like the the sewer dwellers who are hungry and things like that. Mm, but, the crazies. Yeah, but then you get these real, like, slaps in the face of, like, when he goes into that building early on and there's, like, a whole theatre production happening <laughs> and people are watching it and, like, it's a really catchy, jaunty, but very cr- pro-crime kind of song going on. It's like, wow, there is sort of, like, a... Society? Semblance of a society going on here. It's not like in Mad Max. It's not just total chaos. It's really interesting. And yeah, very much like Mad Max. Um, and yeah, that whole aspect of like, you know, the time, like the 22 hours, um, you got to get through and finish it all in one night. It really lent itself well to making this feel like a, even though it's not in real time, like a semi real time journey. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And. I am a big fan of those type of stories that take place all in one certain amount of time. There's very little skipping. And when there is... Again, the Warriors. <laughs> it is due to certain reasons. Him getting knocked out, we lose a lot of time from yeah. that. And so he wakes up, oh no, how much time every, do I have left yeah, on my every time, counter now? Every time you notice that the time's gone down, like even at the beginning where it's like, oh, you said 24 hours, there's only 22 left. And then by the time he's at the city, it's already at 19. It's like, Jesus, time's passing, get a move on. Yes. Now, just to address some of the Metal Gear stuff, and then we'll leave it there because there is major differences. And that's why I say, like, it's evoking. It's not just, it's not like those games that's stealing from this. Snake, I say, is similar from Escape from New York to those Metal Gear games, mainly down to those visuals. And even David Hayter's voice sounds like a a Snake Plissken type voice that raspy. The thing is, weirdly enough, Snake in the Metal Gear games talks more than... Depending on the type of scene, yeah. Yes, but in comparison to the movie we just watched, he talks more. For sure. And so he has more ability to give us vocal range, while Kurt Russell... He only needs to say a couple of things at a time, and that's it. And he's and his way of doing it is apathetic. While Snake in the Metal Gear games, even Big Boss, he's never apathetic. He may have a chip on his shoulder. He may pretend like he doesn't give a rat's ass, but he always actively cares. Hence, he's working. Hence, he's on the mission. Hence, he's trying to stop whatever the thing is. But uh, Snake in this movie, he he he's much more cynical. 
and that's a great divide between mm. the two. But there's a lot more also character development going on with the Metal Gear Snake in some of the games. Not so much two, but a lot of them. But you can definitely see why uh, the the comparisons are made. The looks, the outfits, the way he moves around, the vocal delivery, and just twenty four hours, huh? <laughs> yeah, and obviously the name is there, but they are different. They are their own things. I would say Snake in the games is far more of a comedic character than Snake in this movie like in turn he's not like he gives one liners as well but more in terms of just you you laugh at Snake in the games yeah. a little bit there's, at some of the absurdity some of it is that like com- comically s- comically serious but then there's also like reactions to like getting electrocuted and things like that yeah well i would say Kurt Russell he uh, he's a genuine badass I think they're going far more for a genuine bad boy thing while still having a bit of a tongue-in-cheek appeal to him. The fact that we find out he's why he's called Snake very late in the movie <laughs> where they have stripped him of his shirt. You see his chest, but you don't see the tattoo at first. Yeah, the it's... scene goes on for a very long time before you get a wide shot that shows the tattoo that goes all the way down. Yeah, it, 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 It's a lot like what we were talking about in Mad Max 2 where it's like this character, if you haven't seen the first one, it's just the legend is all you have of him. Oh yes, and everyone knows of him, but... We get bits and pieces. Now, to talk about the premise itself, I adore it. It, This is the the type of thing that stories are made for, where you take something that is both outlandish and simple and combine it. What if society was so overrun with crime that they walled off a big piece of land to be just a prison and you just leave them in there and which place would you use oh new york would be a great place especially when this was made in the 70s and late 70s into the 80s new york was just a cesspool that's why the warriors that we covered last week was so wonderful where you could just shoot in new york or areas of new york or just show the visuals of it at that time and it says so much about the location because it was so dirty and grimy and just disgusting there's so many great movies from the 70s into the 80s that are taken take place in new york where the character of new york says it all on its own martin scorsese's career correct like taxi driver (laughs) mean streets after hours where there was just such a a a shithole the idea of oh what happens if one day we just put all of the shitty people here and walled them off and left them there is a genius premise. Of course you can pick it to death and go, why would they uh, give away the real estate and all of that? Who cares? It's a, like, the movie doesn't care. <laughs> the there movie a has a certain movie-like logic to everything where you have the boss guy who's on the uh, on the radio and he's like, Snake, you need to do this or else. I did have a dark thought early on because they mentioned, like, okay, you'll, you'll fly in and you'll land on the World Trade Center. And it made me think, like, oh, wow, if 9-11 still happens in this world, they probably wouldn't care. Yes. Uh, there's <laughs> a lot of emphasis on the Twin Towers as well, visually, which has just made the movie. And still, it takes place before. But it was made before and still takes place before, even though this it's is- made, like, 20 years before, exactly. Mm, I mean. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but that premise in itself, I mean, did you have a familiarity with what the story elements were when it came to Escape from New York. Were you familiar with 
that side of it, like what you are actually going to be watching rather than this just being an influence on something that you have engaged with before? Um, I didn't necessarily know that that was the plot of the film, but as soon as the element was introduced, I'm like, okay, I know what I'm in for. Or at least I thought I did. And it still, like I said, it did deliver on it, but I did have the revelations of like, oh, wow, how much of a society is actually built in the city? It is it is really neat what they build towards because a lot of the first act is silent. There's very little dialogue. Long shots, just not only in length and duration, but in terms of visually, we're seeing it from very far away. They're wide shots as well. That is always reminding you of the environment around the mm. characters, even outside of New York. It's really well done in that way. I love how John Carpenter movies look, the aspect ratio he chooses, the font he uses, and the lens flares. He always uses these really wonderful lens flares that just bleed light into the scene, but not in an arrogant way like a a lot of modern things do where lens flares are used to cover up cheapness. Here, it's just a part of it. And I really like just talking about the that they had special lenses that they were using that really allowed you to see distance. You could see with pretty great clarity blocks away what was going on in the frame. Just just streets down, you could see what was happening. Just more street lights and cars and trash. You could just see all the way down. Yeah, you could see pretty far, I'm remembering now, yeah. And that's really great. That's really impressive, not only for the time, but even today where... I feel like a lot of action caught in the camera is always focused on where our characters are. But this, the characters just are in the frame, but everything else is as well. It's it's visually an arresting movie. Mm. Even though it has a lower budget, I would say in comparison to Mad Max, in comparison to The Warriors, I think this one is the most technically competent like on a visual level it is arresting while those other two have some really great visuals but it's more about the the spectacle happening that they've created with the action and the running and the wacky costumes and characters while here i am always thinking about those aesthetics that are captured in escape from new york i always think of it as a visual thing yeah i remember we were saying very similar things last week about the warriors how you know the environment had a sort of identity of its own and the characters were existing in it. Uh, this one definitely did too, um, but I guess the fact that, you know, they they filmed it in some other city, I think it was East St. Louis, it definitely did feel a little bit more constructed, mm. um, but it that, you know, a positive spin on that is that it gave it the sort of impression or the identity that they wanted, you know. They didn't actually go to New York and like people were falling through the floor <laughs> to get eaten by cannibal people. Um, yeah, it, it definitely felt very intricately constructed and, yeah, very dangerous. Quite quiet and, you know, obviously some parts it would be a lot more dangerous. The cabbie says as much, like, are oh, you going around at night? Good luck. Um, but, yeah, it... it it lent itself to that quiet, sneaking nature. Like, oh man, it's it's really good that Pliskin isn't just, you know, gung-ho Rambo going on out there. The music complements that as well. Mm. There's moments where it needs to be bombastic when it's called for, but it's very serene. Uh, it's rather... I, I just think it's brilliant that John Carpenter's music styling 
at one point dated this movie. If you watch this in 2004, this movie's soundtrack would date it. But now with this obsession with the 80s, a lot of which those uh, things in movie form were very much forged by John Carpenter, um, it's come back around as feeling not of a of the time period, but rather this is just back in vogue again. Mm. I love the music in in this. It's it's never intrusive. It's always just tingling along in the back of your brain, just happening there. And I just it, talking about video games and stuff. It does remind me of some video games, especially nowadays, where there's a real emphasis on the on the serenity of music being the juxtaposition to the horrific imagery that you are in it makes me think obviously this is more of a synthetic electronic feel but just in terms of the visuals and the accompaniment of the music reminds me of stuff like Silent Hill and their soundtracks and their music where you have this very beautiful uh very calm music uh, a good portion of the time, but you have this really dreamy, nightmarish imagery happening in your game. And I got that a lot here where it's like they introduce the Duke in his beautiful car with the chandeliers and the disco ball. And we'll have a whole lot to say about the Duke. And I and I think he needed evidence. <laughs> but he could have been introduced with like bomb, bomb, bomb villain music, but instead it was just casual. It's just so casual. Just nonchalant it's not making an emphasis on anything it's just saying yeah there's the bad guy snake's watching him from afar so are you mm. we'll meet him later <laughs> but uh what did you think of just the music aspect because uh, it, it, with john carpenter's stuff that's always something to be referenced i mean most people know the halloween music without even yeah. having seen the movie yeah i I, I there's there's some stuff from him that I need to rewatch. Like I've I've seen Halloween before, but I think I overhyped it. I want to check it out again just to give myself a fresher take on it. Um, famously, I've only seen part of the thing, but I know the theme from the thing that really quiet sort of like dun dun yeah dun dun. And Tarantino used the extended score of that for Hateful Eight. Okay, I haven't seen that one. I should. Mm. Um. But yeah, the the music in this was really complimentary. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but it totally led into the vibe. Like, we've talked a lot about the first half of the film already, and really that's probably the part that's going to stick with me the most. Um, it gets very actiony towards the end, and it's very good. But yeah, those quiet moments uh, sneaking through the streets with the accompanying music and the accompanying imagery, it's, it's definitely the part that, yeah, I'm going to remember. You can tell just music-wise, but also production, that James Cameron, who did work on this movie, by the way, he was a matte painter, mm -hmm. a lot is taken from Escape from New York and Carpenter stuff for things like The Terminator. The, the intro music that we get in Escape from New York does have some of those elements that I think are from the, the iconic Terminator music. It's not I'm not saying it's one fun, but like you could listen to those two next to each other and it feels like the progression of the 80s sound happening where it's like the Carpenter one sounds like, oh, that's the early 80s where everything's way more synthy. But then you get to uh, the first Terminator soundtrack where what was that mid 80s? I can't remember. Was that later? Wasn't, part? wasn't that 
1980 on the dot? Was or, that 1980 or on 80, the dot? Or 84? Somewhere in the 80s. But I'll check. Because, well, John Carpenter, uh, James Cameron was working on this in the early 80s at least, right? Because this is, what was I can't remember, was this 1980 on the dot as well? Uh, I think it was 81. 81, but um, you get what I'm saying, though, overall. And we are focusing on the first part of the movie because it front loads you with all of the information. 84. Terminated in 1984, so mid-80s. Yeah. This is early 80s. And yet the sound, you can hear the difference, but it's still in in a in tandem with one another. But with Escape from New York, it's front-loading you with information, like in many stories where you have the spy or the soldier who needs to go on the mission. Here's the briefing. And we, mm. we, the audience, get the briefing. Yes. Here's the world. Here's this character. Here's the stakes. Here's the president. Here's Snake. Here's his problem that he has to overcome. Here's a ticking clock element. Off you go. And all of that happens. And you're in the momentum of it, even though it's presented in a slow way. Then you get to my favorite moment in the film, which is when he doesn't know what to do now because the thing he was tracking was on a homeless guy. Yeah. And so he walks out to that little pod that the president was in shrugs basically grabs a chair sits it down and he just sits in the chair and it's just a solid few seconds of him just sitting there with this expression of i don't know what to do now that was great yeah <laughs> it, it, I remember last week we were talking about how you know the warriors their goal let's just get back home to coney island there was never any question that like once they're there they're safe and other than the fact that the main villain is there it's mostly true like no one mm. else really attacks them but then here, yeah, you start off with that whole briefing and it's like just setting in stone, like, here's your video game objective, here's your win state, this is what you have to do, you find them following this, contact me with this, blah, 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 blah. then he gets there, and it, it just gets flipped on its head, like, oh, this isn't the guy, Where, where's my waypoint objective now? Oh, now my radio's broken. <laughs> and now my radio's broken. I, I guess I'll just sit down. <laughs> I remember, like, when he found the guy and he was calling in, it's like, do, do I go home now? Like, I can't do the mission. It's like, no, you have to do the mission. <laughs> you have to do it. <laughs> do it. Uh, do you, how do you feel about Snake's uh, just flippancy as a character? Because we get that within one of his first lines where it's like, they've got the, the, they've got the president. The president of what? <laughs> <laughs> Very funny Snake. <laughs> He's not my president. Fuck him. And then, yeah, the, the, um, the, I forget the, uh, the words escaping me, but the the safety measure of putting the bomb in him is like, oh, we thought, you, you know, you can't escape to Canada like you were probably thinking. <laughs> and if you did, we'd just shoot you down. And he gets very angry when he finds out about that. So there's like, obviously he's mad because the death thing's in him, but then there's a slight implication that like, oh yeah, he maybe wanted to just escape from this situation. Of but, course he would. <laughs> but that's not the name of the movie. It's not escape from this situation. It's escape from he New York. He has no <laughs> allegiance to anything but himself, seemingly. We we know that at the in the past he had an allegiance to the U.S. He's yeah. this great war hero. He's he got all of these medals at the youngest age that anyone ever has. The president themselves has given him a medal, every wonderful accolade. And now here he is going to prison for trying to do a robbery and and a heist. And he just doesn't. He has he has no shit. He has no fucks to give. Can't believe they're saying a dead man in prison. Yeah, I know. Everyone <laughs> thought he was dead, except for the people who knew he was alive, and they got to live because they never said the phrase "I thought you died." Did you like that? That was a recurring thing. Every character who said mm. "I thought you were dead" does die. Every single one of them. Oh, everyone. Right. It's a little motif. Motif. When Brain says it, 
halfway through the movie because they got separated. He's like, oh, Snake, thank God I thought you died. And then he dies. Oh, right. Brain dies. But to begin with, he was almost safe because he's like, hey, Snake, I knew you were going to make it out of there from that previous job that we did. He didn't raise the death flag. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to retire in two days. But uh, (laughs) one of my favorite scenes as well, this is the difference between the more Hollywood version of this movie and the Carpenter version of this. Heck, even the Warriors fell into this trap. He goes into a place called, uh, what was it, um, Chock Full of Nuts or something yeah. rather that. He walks in and then there's this woman in there, this sexy lady, and she's asking for a cigarette and they're having this conversation. And you, the viewer, goes, oh, yes, the love interest that has to be in this film because they're always in this movie. A lady is talking to him or and she very, seems yeah, nice. Or at the very least an opposite sex tag along kind of thing. Yes, uh, yes an opposite sex tag along. And then she gets killed immediately. She just gets dragged through the ground. He tries to help her, and then he just accepts it and goes away, and we never <laughs> see her again. That's one of my favorite things about Escape from New York. I-, I would just say not immediately. They do have a fair, decently lengthy conversation for a first meeting, and then he fails to save her, and he has to move on. <laughs> and then he has to move on, yeah. and he never <laughs> thinks about her ever again, and we never see or focus on it ever again. I adore that. That's the type of stuff I adore about John Carpenter movies. He always has things like that where, yeah, I could do the traditional Hollywood bullshit, but I'm not going to do that. Fuck that. That's the reason why he doesn't make movies anymore. Here's this great quote about when they always remake his films, how does he feel about them? And he just says, oh, I love it. I put my hand out and a check appears in it. (laughs) That's how I feel about it because they're never going to make it better than I do. And he's been right. Nobody's <laughs> never made a Halloween movie better than he did. Nobody has done that. Like, he's right. He's fucking right, and it's awesome. <laughs> like, it's so funny. Does um does Escape from L.A. give him a love interest? No. Okay. Escape from L.A. gives him Steve Buscemi <laughs> as an annoying tag-along <laughs> character who's, <laughs> like, a map-to-the-stars character. It's reminding me of Desperado, kind it of. It uh, uh, But... To to get into the world that is now New York, uh, what did you think of the ensemble? Because one of the brilliant things is you think this is going to be just a very solitary man with no name type adventure, but like with the man with no name type adventures, you meet some people along the way. Heck, even his uh, his boss, Lee Van Cleef, he was in those Clint Eastwood movies. He was in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. He was The Bad. He was in A Fistful of Dollars and stuff like that. Like, even they know, hence Kurt Russell's doing a Clint Eastwood impression. Um, They know what they're doing, but a part of those is slowly building up your community of characters, the good guys and the bad guys. So what did you think of the little ensemble we've got to meet? Yet again, it's another little Metal Gear thing that it took from. Um, Yeah, I I enjoyed that element. Especially Harry Dean Stanton. He always just a striking looking guy. I remember I saw his name in the credits. I'm like, oh, this guy was in Twin Peaks. Who was he? Who was he? <laughs> oh, yes. He was the guy that owned the, the trout. Uh, the fat trout. That's Caravan it, yeah. Park. Yeah. Yeah. He was great. Yeah. As soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, that's who he was. For some reason, I was mixing up with Harry Truman. So I thought like, oh, was he the sheriff? No, he's the, tr- he's the trailer park guy. Um, yeah. He was great. He was 
he he had a different sort of reaction to Snake uh, than everyone else. It's like, oh, I've heard of you. I thought you were dead. There's like this implied history thing. Implied history. There is a history between them that we don't get all the details of. Yeah, he fucked Snake in the past. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's like playing around with little allegiances here, covering his own ass, but actually helping him. Um, his his relationship to some of the other characters, like we meet the cabbie early on and uh the subtitles for my one as soon as that character first spoke it said like cabby i'm like oh i guess he drives a cab oh yeah yeah so when he did drive the cab i thought to myself like oh okay they kind of spoiled that but then when people started calling him cabby i'm like oh no it's his name that's That's his name that kind of makes it okay now (laughs) because this is a world where everyone's called what their function is you are brain so you are called brain hence he doesn't like it when Snake calls him by his actual name and begs him to stop doing it, <laughs> and Snake refuses to stop doing it. Yeah, that's true. Brain, Duke, Cabby, and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do it a lot. Yeah, he was fun. Um, the president. The president was also a lot of fun. Um, I remember there was there was one moment somewhere in the film, I think it was when he was on the dartboard or the dart wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, where he is just so distraught and in despair of his situation. And it just called my mind back to the whole premise of the film about, like, you know, New York is now this walled-off city. And I'm just imagining that in his head at that moment, it's like, was this all a mistake kind of thing? I built my own prison in a way here. Uh, A fun uh, detail is Donald Pleasance plays the president, and he is British, and Mm -hmm. he tries to do an accent here. God God bless his heart. But... He based his reactions to having been a prisoner of war himself. P-P-O-W, yeah, yeah did so that. he called back to that. And I really like that attention to detail because for most of the film, you actually feel for the president character. You feel for him and you want him to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that comes to bite you in the ass at the end of the movie. But it works because Donald Pleasance is drawing upon something. This movie plays around with stock characters, stock story elements, but it's those little touches. We've already gone over the thing that many people praise, the, 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 the John Carpenter direction and music and cinematography by Dean Cundy, which is like, what, this is like the fourth Dean Cundy movie we've done on the show, I think. We've done Jack and Jill, this, nothing but trouble. I think there's something else we've done as well. Mm. But he's a great cinematographer, but he did Jurassic Park and he did Back to the Future movies. But, uh... You have to pay, uh, you know, like you have to give all the credit to the fact that they get these stock characters and these actors add their little flair to it. Like Donald Pleasant's bringing that in makes the president more than just, oh, save me, I'm the president. You've got to do it. I'm the president. Yeah. And so when he has his little flip at the end against the Duke, because that's also the great, what am I? I'm the Duke. You're the number one guy and all of that. It makes it feel impactful because we've actually seen this character go on a journey from being the normal, mild-mannered president on the plane to being the guy who's traumatized to being the guy that's now turned insane. He's turned into the people in the prison himself. By the end, he's almost like an animal with that gun. Uh, I just really like the stuff. Now, what about the cabbie? I, I thought he was going to be your favorite <laughs> one. He Honestly, from the moment you first see him, there is something going on with this guy. He's just like so into that play. 
even when he notices Snake Pliskin there, it's still like, what's he thinking looking at Snake? And then when he calls him by name, it's like, do you know him? But then, no, it, it just turns out that everyone, you know, has heard of Snake and thinks that he's dead. <laughs> his, his, he was a lot of fun, just hearing him with his vocal deliveries, his enthusiasm, the whole way taking Snake to Brain and then just, like, getting distraught over the fact that Snake doesn't like Brain and, like, probably going to kill him. <laughs> and he always has some form of music accompanying him wherever he goes, or he's at a place with music, or he's singing songs himself, and... Ernest Borgnine, great performance. Uh, Ernest Borgnine was an interesting actor. I mean, we grew up with him, probably knowing him from that one episode of The Simpsons where uh, they were supposed to go on camp and they got separated with the Flanders. Uh, Homer and Bart got separated with Flanders and then we cut back to the camp and it's like scout leader Ernest Borgnine telling them story I, around the camp and it's like, oh my God, I, I what's do, that over there? And it's like, oh. I do think of him for a different show that has a yellow main character. Oh, yes. He well, was Mermaid Man in the Spongebob. That so, is it, yeah. Spongebob as well. But uh, uh, Oscar-winning actor, we've both seen Marty, the film he was in in the 1950s. We've both watched that together. Yes, yeah. who, who's he? He was Marty. He was Marty. Yeah, that's Marty. Oh, Wow. Yeah, yeah, and once you know that, it's... Sorry, I think it's, I peaked the audio, but... It's wow. very clear once you know that's him, it's just him older. This is just him a couple of few decades right. later. Right, wow. I didn't realise. Yeah, that's him. Fun performance, because in this, he's being... He has no emotional depth in terms of what Marty does. Like, Marty's all about, like, those nuances of emotion. Cabby, he's just a... He's a cartoon. I love when he lights the Molotov cocktail while still talking yeah, yeah, and just yeah. say, I've been in, in this business for 30 years and coming at night and just throws his, and just his, keeps driving. His street smarts is shown in a very fun way. <laughs> he's almost like a crazy taxi GTA character where mm. you have the fun, <laughs> wacky over-the-top guy. I love Cabby. And I like that he does do the right thing. He is also a coward, but he also does the right thing. And then we have uh, Maggie. Maggie was her name, yes? Yes. Played by Adrian Barbeau, who was uh, John Carpenter's wife at the time. Oh, okay. And she's had a very illustrious film career and history and pop culture, and uh, she was in Babylon 5. Funnily enough, same episode as uh, Michael Beck, the lead of the Warriors, mm -hmm. she was in the same episode, oh, okay. and they played off of each other. In Babylon 5, it was an episode where she was the head of this group that was trying to free Mars, and then you found out she used to be a terrorist. And uh, her name was Amanda Carter, which is a fun little reference to John Carter of Mars. And So, Ryan, if, if our listening people's choice for next week is not a 70s or 80s New York crime film that has someone from that episode of Babylon 5, I'm going to be very disappointed. There are other actors in that episode that could be in movies that we do. So, But what a happenstance. I didn't mm. make that a choice by design. It was just, oh, that just happened to be a thing. So, day, yeah. I liked her. I liked Maggie. I thought she was great. She just had a, she had a beautiful, no-nonsense attitude, but you could tell that she had emotions still. She wasn't completely devoid of emotions. It's not as if she's repressed them where you can't see them. There's many times where she just gives longing looks towards brain or concern towards Snake. I, I really liked her character on this watching. I mean, what did you think of her? I need to see the film again. But yeah, there, there was a lot going with her that was unsaid. Similar yeah. to Snake, actually, yeah. What about when she pretty much, with a lack of words 
was saying goodbye to Snake at the end. I thought that was a pretty powerful moment. It was like, that's the most emotional and vocal we've seen Snake in the film as well. He was really upset. He was like, come on, you gotta, you got to leave. He's dead. You see Kurt Russell, like, gritting his teeth. He's, he's really upset about this throughout the whole movie. He hasn't given a fuck about anyone. And this is the moment well, where he, he kind of shows... I mean, you know, when I say that, yeah. he clearly does, but it's, it's... He tried to save the chock full of nuts girl. Yeah, but he didn't yeah. have a pained expression on his face. He was just like, oh, that happened. Oh, oh well. Uh, you've been with me for more hours than two minutes. I thought her death was good, Maggie's death. Mm. Uh, she had the, you got given the gun and tries to shoot the Duke and obviously gets killed. But even when we see her body, she has this almost happy expression on her face of like, yeah, I stood my ground. Yeah, it felt very Western-y. It did. Uh, and obviously, a bad guy in his gang. <laughs> when I saw Isaac Hayes in the opening credits, I'm like, ooh, this I like this. Did you remember I said the cast and then I said and then there's one person that I won't say but it'll make Bartek happy and you're I like oh I... someone will make me happy and then I'm like laughing because like it's Isaac Hayes I forgot that you said that but I was happy when I saw Isaac Hayes and I immediately was like oh no science all evidence <laughs> do you want to explain that <laughs> we once did a movie on the show called Flipper <laughs> yes. and Isaac Hayes was a police officer in that and I think he was like the chief of police chief of police he was a big deal police officer and there is, I forget the details, but there's some big plot going on with, like, sharks in the water, uh, some sort of science that's going on. Radioactive and, waste is yeah. being dumped in the ocean. And and our main characters, who include Elijah Wood and Paul Hogan, mm-hmm. uh, they they gather up some legit scientific evidence to prove that this is happening, and they take it to Isaac Hayes. They also have, like, the location as well. Yeah, they have all the details, all the science, and Isaac Hayes throws it all off by saying, I don't want this science stuff, I want evidence. And we he- have a location where you can <laughs> find it for yourself. No, I want evidence, damn you. And, and in our episode on that movie, we had a lot of fun talking about that. It's one of the worst pieces of writing for a character to, to, to dismiss what the heroes have found because they're children, right? The idea is like, your children, Your children and Paul Hogan. But it's like... Well, they, there was a girl in they that found, film, wasn't there? Yeah, they found all of the evidence. They have the location. They have literally everything you need. And he, as the chief of police, just goes, ah, oh, I need more evidence. And obviously Isaac Hayes I need any evidence. I need any evidence. And obviously Isaac Hayes was a singer and an actor, and he was in South Park, and there's a whole history with that. But I liked him here because I guess when you think of these movies, we've compared Mad Max and The Warriors. The bad guy is crazy. They're over-the-top insane. Toe-cutter or... or, uh, The Duke's uh, right-hand man guy. but But even he was not he was crazy in a weird way that was very different very much physical and he was just mr you know i could fuck you up but he never did anything crazy himself mm, but that's true just talking about the duke the duke isaac hayes plays him real laid back real real laid back and even when he snaps to violence it's not it's not in that movie way like in mad max or or or, or the warriors i mean what did you think of just that thing because as we've discussed with these movies that's always like a an element that you in a way get excited for which is the over-the-top crazy arched villain and he's built up that way because of the cabbie's line about like well, you don't just you know meet the duke and move on you meet him like a second before you die because he's just that mad he's going to kill you <clears throat> uh, so when we do meet him and he's not 
you know, crazed or he's not going to snap your neck at the drop of a hat. There is this element of wariness of like, okay, what is what is your actual deal? And then he ends up being relatively composed for most of it. He has a plan. Yeah, and and it makes you think back to when the Air Force One was hijacked at the beginning of the film and like the the people in the cockpit kept talking about like you know, social values of like, oh, well, this is because of racism and... Imperialist state trying to suppress the workers, yeah. Yeah, and it makes you think like, okay, is there something a bit deeper going on here? And we don't really get too many of the details by the end, but there is this implication out well, there. Because it's a dystopia. Yeah. And so it's unsettling that the terrorists and Isaac Hayes are right. And the thing that Snake is there to save and protect and help is the stuff that has generated this prison island in the first place. It's 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 very upsetting, but that's the world that, that we are living in in this feature film because Isaac Hayes is the crazy warlord, but he has a very coherent plan. He's being very sensible with it. He has a timetable and he has a reason for doing it because what is happening to him, even if he is a monster, is still inhumane and disgusting and a part of the dystopia. And so obviously you don't want him to win, but you you can see the rationalization. And so it helps reinforce why he is so composed as an antagonist rather than... Uh, the ones that we've talked about in other movies that are anarchic for the sake of it because nothing matters now. While here, there's still a society. There's still an oppressive totalitarian government. This isn't a dystopia where everything has fallen apart and now we make our own rules. Yeah, not everyone is Luther from The Warriors. Not everyone is Luther from The Warriors. Not everyone is uh, uh, a Morton Joe from Mad Max Fury Road where it's like, I've made my own society. Now I dictate it for everyone else. Uh, the Duke, he's like, I'm the top dog, and everyone serves their place, but like, we're going to work together to do something. And I, I like him as a, as a villain, because he matches Snake. They're both quiet men, but they will get shit done when shit needs to get done. And I liked how they talk to each other, and just how he bent the arrow in his knee or in his leg just to make Snake squeal and just to get him to talk, because, oh, I'm not going to be able to keep... I'm not going to do the villain monologue at you for you to talk to me. I'm just going <laughs> to twist this. <laughs> A detail I really adore is uh, Snake gets injured, and it maintains throughout the movie. He's limping even at the end. He's limping right at the end. I mean, just something like that to to give credence to this being an action film. You don't always get that. It's like, ah, they might limp for a scene or two and then they'll move on. Most of this movie, Snake has his ass handed to him and you actually feel it because Kurt Russell's limping all over the place. He's battered, he's bruised, he's, he's got this look on his face of, oh, man, I'm not up for another fight. Yeah, well, you know, the, the first aid system wasn't implemented until Snake Eater, so you can't really that. That is that. true, that is true. <laughs> uh, what are some other elements or beats in the film that you want to go over? Um, I feel like there's something with the the beginning where where he he meets Hauk and he gets the the mission but it slipped my mind what I was going to say about it 
Yeah, I think maybe it was just the fact that, again, it was one of those established things that gets, uh, you know, turned on its head. Like when we discovered that the life thing was on the hobo, it was like, we've established that, okay, there is this voice that he can talk to frequently throughout the film and it puts like a sense of safety into into his situation. And then when that gets destroyed, that gets turned on its head as well. I think that's, yeah, what I was and thinking of. And Snake makes a promise of, I will kill you. <laughs> and that gets flipped on its head as well at the end when it's like, I'm too tired. Uh, I would love to, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about the end in a sec, but what did you think about how all of them died and only Snake and the president got to make it out of New York? The bad guys die, our friends that we met along the way all die. They're all gone. They get wiped off the map. What did you think of that? It was, yeah, it was really sad. You did grow attached to some of the characters that were with him along the way. Um, It does kind of build up back to that whole, like, oh, well, the goal has been achieved. This is the goal that we had in our eyesight from the beginning. Um, But the things that were gained and lost along the way now kind of reshape this situation. It was like, oh, this is exactly what we wanted at the start of the film, but we wanted more as it went along, and now that's gone. It is very poetic. I think that both Escape from from Films, Escape from New York and Escape from LA, have a pitch perfect ending to both of them. Mm-hmm. They're similar, but you know, they, they they hit the the messaging and just the fucking attitude. This president is saved. Yay! Now Snake is here to talk to him. Heck, he even gets offered a job. Hey, do you want to? Work for us. We're the greatest. Uh, you and I, we could work together. Uh, I'll kill you later. I'm too tired. But before he became too tired, he talks to the president. He has, he has the attention of the leader of the free world. And he says, like, oh, yes, I'll, if that's what you want, I'll give you my time. I'll give you my time. The president is getting a shave. He's getting made up. He's going to have a broadcast. And uh, they have the tape now. I like the 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 moment where... Give me the thing, give me the thing. And and uh, the guy comes over, no, 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 no. Give us the tape first. Give me the tape first, and then we'll cure you of the capsules in your neck, you, you piece of shit. You're still meat to us. Yeah, finish the mission. Finish the mission. And he does, and it's just in the nick of time, and I love the look on Kurt Russell's face. I mean, how did you feel about Kurt Russell in this? Because we've talked a lot about him over the years on our podcast. We've seen him in many different roles, and uh, what did you think of him in this movie? Well, j- jumping off the parts in the ending, uh, when he when he did get the, the thing in his neck removed, the I guess the silence that happened after that, it almost made me think that Lee Van Cleef was going to tell him, like, okay, you can go now, you're free. <laughs> Just, like, kind of dismissive about the whole thing. Um, and, again, building on that point of, like, the ending, in the president's point of view, that is the ending that he wanted and it's the ending that he got but he didn't realize the things that were lost along the way so his reaction of like oh yes i suppose i'll you know i i'm grateful for their sacrifice and then i'll give you my time becomes oh you know i'm gonna do a thing in two and a half minutes it's like 30 seconds is all that he really cared um but yeah the snake the fact that he did go through all of that in the film and then at the end uh, the things that he lost are now gone. They're not being respected the same way that he would respects hope. them or would hope. 
Um, it totally, totally worked that the way that he ends the film is I gave him the wrong tape. It was just some music and I'm going to destroy the thing and walk away. Yeah. Because it tells us why he is the way he is. At one point he realized in his past and we've, we've gone over it. There's a great implied history. We Mm. don't get all the details, but this gives us something Somewhere along the way, Snake realized that what he was fighting for, what he was defending for, defending was evil and was pointless and apathetic and cruel. And here he is, save the president, and he gives him the opportunity to be proven wrong. Mm. Here I am. I want to let you know that people died. Many people died. And I just want to know what you think of that. You. Yeah. And he couldn't even look at, like, the president couldn't even give him visual attention. He was too busy looking in the mirror and touching his face and muttering about it and could not even acknowledge it. And Snake is just proven what he was already believed before. The system, it doesn't change. This guy, he cared when I was saving him, but now that that job is over, back to it. So fuck him. Fuck this. Fuck the establishment. Fuck it all. And he just walks off and he's smoking and he has that, I'm tired. Because yeah, he's tired. Snake is over it. Who gives a shit? And so he destroys that tape as they embarrass the president and most likely starts a war. <laughs> he doesn't, because what's the, who? Nothing, none of it matters. And I I adore Kurt Russell so much in this. This is his favorite role in his entire career. Yeah, no big surprise. And you can see it. You can see he's having the time of his life. You talk about how he sounds like Clint Eastwood, like Dirty Harry and, and things of that nature. And yes, it's an impersonation. It's an impression. But Kurt Russell brings so much of his own to Mm. it that it doesn't matter and it's its own thing after a certain point and the way just kurt russell with the eye patch just gives looks towards even just a his console on his glider just you you just are drawn in to everything that's happening because of this performer living and breathing this character who in other people's hands could have been a cartoon. He I, either he didn't say anything yet, or he barely said anything. But like early on, when he was listening to Hauk and his like head was like slightly tilted, uh, slightly raised, and just looking and listening, it was like oh, okay, there's there's a certain level of care factor that this guy is feeling right now, and I can see it on his face. It's quite low. <laughs> he plays it seriously, and it makes it believable because. We could tell you everything about Snake, right down to the fact he has an eye patch and a snake tattoo on his belly that obviously goes all the way down to his penis. And you could say that sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon-level silliness. But Kurt Russell never plays it like that, even with the raspy voice and some of these great one-liners. He's never winking at you. And so it turns back around to it being genuinely cool, just like how it is when Clint Eastwood does it. Yeah, he's uh, he's considered a hero in this world who's got like a legend built around him and there's expectations thrown on him because of that. But he's just going through the motions. He's not, you know, playing into action one-liners and all that. He is just doing the mission and he's quite jaded about the stuff that he's gone through. 
So, spoilers for Escape from L.A., I guess. Oh, no, I'll talk I haven't about seen the ending. He has a similar moment. It's basically the same beat, but it's him talking over on a hologram, mm-hmm. and it's a dawning realization that, that Snake has the ability to stop the world from being blasted with an EMP that would send us back into the Dark Ages. Okay. And so that's the threat of Snake. You've done it. You saved the day. You've done a great job. Wonderful. Um, now you need to give us the thing so that we can turn off the devices that are going to blast us back into the Dark Ages. And he does at the end. No. No. Snake just <laughs> tells them, great, I'm looking forward to it. And the hologram turns off when everything turns off and it's just goes into darkness credits. And I just adore the idea that Snake Plissken is so jaded that he allows the apocalypse to happen <laughs> to Earth. And there was always rumored to be an escape from Blah third film, and it was always joked or said escape from Earth, where Snake leaves Earth and goes to space. That was always joked about or said that that could be a thing, escape from Earth, because Earth is now the prison, right? Mm. And eventually there's a movie with uh, Hugo... We- no, no, not Hugo Weaving, the other guy. I always get them confused. The the guy from LA Confidential and uh, the... Inc- uh, yeah, I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head. I like him as an actor, but and uh, Priscilla Queen does it, but... He's in a movie where it's a Snake Plissken character, and it's on a space station, and it's 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 and it's an escape from movie. It's just blatantly that, and it's a rip roaring good time. I think it's called Lock 'Em Up or something silly, just a very generic title, and uh, it's a good movie. But it's clearly we just made an escape from movie, and now. We are just calling these characters different names, but it is uh, the Escape from Earth movie that people wanted, so there you go. Um, and that is most, if not all, I have to say about Escape from New York. I'm glad we've done it. Yeah, same. I hope that this has uh, tickled your fancy to check out some more John Carpenter movies along the way. It's He's always been one that I've been meaning to check out more of. Like like I already said with Halloween, I, I watched it with too much expectation. Um, need to check it out again. I've got the DVD still. Uh, need to actually watch 100% of The Thing. Man, that's such a good it, movie. When, when my younger brother, who famously does not watch movies, considers it his favourite movie. You know, I should probably catch up to that, but at least... <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't remember if we watched it together, but Big Trouble in Little China, great mm-hmm. movie. Uh, Kurt Russell does his John Wayne impression in that, which he then brought back for The Hateful Eight, so... <laughs> um, before we started recording, I was looking up um, something about Escape from New York, and just re- I saw that it was written by two people, John Carpenter and another guy. Oh, Nick, Nick Castle, who was the director of Major Pain. Uh, well, now I've got nothing to say. He was also Michael Myers. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, he was the, the Michael Myers, and I think he came back in some forms for the new Halloween trilogy, uh, and... I'm going to stop now because I will. I, I I do know that the the new Michael Myers, the guy who is doing all of the stunts and stuff, he was in Babylon Five. But let's move on. Uh, <laughs> let's move on from the B Five talk. Now, who was he? 
No, no, I'm not going to get oh, into okay. it. Okay. So it's a long, long-winded story. Well, you've 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 uh, nurtured me to care about like, oh, who? What do I? Which <laughs> do I remember the episode? <laughs> so, do you want to know what we're going to be watching next time on the podcast? Um, only if I can say whether I recommend Escape or not. Do you? Yeah, I do. I do too. Now, the movie that we have is on the top of our list. It's oh, so been sitting there for a very, very long time. Do you know? Is it the one that Sam Noonan recommended? No, that's the no, second that's on a our second. list. Uh, was it, Talking about Dirty Harry. Was it one of the ones that John recommended? Yes, our friend uh, John from Dirty Harry Minute yep. recommended a famous, or should I say infamous, oh. Clint Eastwood movie. Every Which Way But Loose. That's it, yeah. The movie with him and an orangutan. Uh, yep, that's... Uh, who, what? And a, a monkey, an oh. orangutan. <laughs> I thought you were saying someone's name. No, no, no. John... Uh, God. John has recommended probably one of the most reviled Clint Eastwood movies <laughs> of his career, which is Clint Eastwood is a guy with an orangutan, which was... I always remember being made fun of in South Park. Right. Uh, they go. They, they have a whole sequences of that movie recreated in South Park, and it's really silly. So we'll be watching that. Uh, it's from the 1970s, I do believe. Uh, Every Which Way But Loose, Clint Eastwood. The, 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 I have not seen the movie, but I know of it from pop culture. But the thing that makes me fearful... And John, I know the person recommended this. I love you. You're a great guy. We've got to get you on soon. <laughs> this movie's almost two hours long, and I'm afraid. <laughs> that, I'm excited. No, this movie's like an hour and 55 minutes long, and I'm so afraid of that being a thing. I'm just like, oh, no. I'm like, if this is a tight 80 minutes, I'd be so happy. But I'm, It's 15 look, minutes longer than this film. Look, maybe it's going to be a good movie. I'm going to try and remove my bias. I like monkey. You like monkey? It's ape. You like ape? <laughs> I don't know the difference, but they seem the same to me. <laughs> monkey different than ape. What are we? We are almost ape. So that is Spit and Polish Presents, the only podcast in which we're almost ape <laughs> and we're Polish. But you we're can, not Ben Stiller. We're not Ben Stiller, who looks like a monkey sometimes, especially in that one scene in Zoolander. No, you got you to say your famous line. He, he reminds us that we, <laughs> we evolved from apes. There we go, yeah. <laughs> I've said that about a few people on this podcast. There are a few <laughs> actors that remind me that we've evolved from apes. <laughs> So you can so find you can find. I remember us. the first time you said that I was like, "Oh my god, I can see what you mean." <laughs> I've said that and people get offended. Like, how could you say that? I'm like, he does. He looks like a bit of a monkey, especially in that one scene in Zoolander when oh. they destroy the Apple computers. Like the files are in the computer, and then they recreate 2001 with him and Owen Wilson. Ooh, ha, ha. Isn't it weird that Zoolander has a blackface scene? Let's move on. Uh, no, it's normal. It's normal. It was 2001. 9-11 just happened. How in, disrespectful for well, the like, movie to come out. Well, like eight years later, Whiteface, black, sorry, Blackface got nominated for an Oscar. Blackface? Oh, yes, Robert Downey Jr. When you said Whiteface, I was like, yeah, white chicks <laughs> happen. You're right. A few years later, white chicks did happen. So I guess the world is fine. They need to make black chicks. No. We are on your social medias of Facebook and Twitter, Spit and Polish Presents. You can email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com. Recommend movies to us and we will add it to our list and eventually get around to covering them. See? 
we're doing everywhere, everywhere, whatever the movie's called. I'm it's every a, which way, way but, but loose. loose. It's an annoying title already. Uh, that's been on the list for a while, and we finally we're finally going to mark it off. So, thank you all so much for tuning in. Until next time, remember to be kind to one another, or else a monkey will get you. And what's the difference between a monkey and an ape? You tell me. Well, we'll find out next week. <laughs> I, I had um, I had this one relative who he was always very serious, kind of not the most emotionally showing kind of guy, we'll say. Um, and growing up, like that was always the impression I got of him. And I remember there was this one time we had a conversation where orangutans were brought up for some reason, and he had this whole rant about how awful they are. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was like Dennis Hopper in Super Mario Brothers, where he's like, ooh, a monkey! <laughs> monkey. <laughs> <laughs> no, he had a whole rant about, like, oh, they're, they're violent and awful and nasty. And I was like... <laughs> they probably are. <laughs> they probably are, yeah, but I just wasn't expecting <laughs> it from this guy. <laughs> like any wild animal, they're probably going <laughs> to fuck you up. They can rip your face off. That, that is, is true. There is that one famous viral video of, like, an orangutan Tang at a zoo giving like this really sinister face. You ever seen that one? No, I have not. Okay, well, I'll show you after. Bye, everyone. Oh, look it up yourself, I guess, to the end, so you don't have to like pause or anything. <laughs> <laughs>